You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors, everyone. This is Rochelle Vanderzanden. I am here with Corey Janoff today, like most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, hello. No guests today for you guys, but we're going to talk about something exciting. I think we're probably a little late in the game for this year, but lots of people at this point are making that big transition from training into that next stage of your career where you're looking for your first attending job or maybe just looking for a new job because it's that switch of the academic year and a lot of a lot of places end up hiring over the summer. Or maybe they hire in the spring and you start in the summer. But anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about different ways you can practice medicine, different kinds of jobs. We can't begin to really weigh in on all of the work-life balance stuff and how practicing medicine is different in different environments. You all know a lot about that, but we can talk about the financial benefits of different kinds of jobs. So we're going to weigh in on that a little bit today. There's a very common idea that like private practice pays more But it's really important that when we're looking at different jobs, we're not taking into consideration only the salary or only the pay. We're also looking at benefits. We're also looking at really like your dollar per hour and all kinds of things like that. Um, And one thing to note is that like when we talk about, we're kind of phrasing this as academic medicine versus private practice, but really we're talking about like academic medicine, maybe more hospital-based practices, something that likely would qualify for PSLF versus like the private practice where you're working in a smaller group with like a a bunch of other docs, but maybe you have an opportunity to be a partner at some point, you know, really those smaller groups as a, as a alternative. Um, This can be pretty location dependent in some cities. Like if you work for an academic institution, you work for that institution In other places you actually work for a private group of doctors that like works at that hospital. So it it all depends on the specific job that you're looking at. But whether you're looking at a, a job that's structured one way or another, like it all boils down to pay, benefits, hours you're working, um, and maybe like what other fringe benefits you might have access to, like whether you qualify for PSLF and things like that. So we're going to dive into some of those things right now. Yes, we are. Um Compensation. Usually that's one of the first things people care about. Well, I guess probably the first thing we should really consider is like what's the actual job description? What are you responsible for doing? Like if it's truly academic, you know, you're probably doing some research. Maybe you have to do some some teaching. Um, you know, how is your time split clinical versus research? That sort of thing versus, you know, if you're just, you know, a clinician, you know, only seeing patients, you know, what type of procedures are you expected to do? What type of patients are you expected to see? Uh, those types of things. So that's probably the, f- the first thing we should narrow down is, you know, the job that, you know, what's going to make us happy from just a job perspective, and then we can figure the, the pay side of it out next. Because um, really, no matter what you get paid, if you hate what you're doing, you're, you're going to burn out pretty quick. Um but, you know, the general uh, 
understanding is that in private practice, you have the potential to make more money than in an academic setting or, or working for a hospital. Not always the case. You know, some hospitals have it pretty dialed in to where, you know, just through economies of scale, they're so large, they can get larger reimbursements from insurance companies, the volume of patients, the types of procedures they might have you do, get, you know, generate higher RVUs. And you have some clients working, they're employed by hospitals making probably more than they could make if they were to do a private practice setting. But um, but general, general rule of thumb, private groups, you have more potential for earnings than uh, academics because it's a risk reward. You're, you're a essentially a business owner if you're a partner in the group or if you're working for for you know other if you're employed by the practice you know it's you know the partners want something for um the additional risk of going out on their own and being business owners um you know it's got to be worth their while monetarily otherwise why why bother doing it so so generally you have the opportunity not guaranteed but opportunity to make more money in a private setting um, and, and sometimes it could be drastic, you know, if like a comparable job in a private group versus uh, an academic setting is a you know, $200,000 a year income difference, there's probably not a lot um, of benefits that could ultimately make up for that. And you sure maybe you get a little bit uh, more in the terms of fringe benefits at the hospital-based position. Um, you know, maybe the, the work-life balance is a little bit better. You know, you, you, uh, but, but yeah, it's going to be hard to make up that, that difference. But again, don't just think about pay um, and, and the annual salary. We, got, we do have to look at those other benefits, like how, how much are you required to work? What locations do you need to cover? Um, how much call are you required to take? Uh, it all adds up. PTO, how much vacation time can you get? How much time off? Um, it could really make a big difference in your, your satisfaction and, and total compensation. Yeah. I mean, and you can really do a little bit of math to figure out how many hours you might actually work in one job, even per year, versus how many you're going to work in another job. So, you know, if you have 10 weeks of PTO versus six weeks of PTO, that's a huge difference. That's four weeks that you're literally not working and still getting paid for. So your dollar per hour is kind of higher than you're thinking. Um, yeah, so it's. I think it's important to look at the math when you're taking these things into consideration. And I, I think one other thing that can be very different in like a hospital-based practice or an academic institution versus private practice is that you see guaranteed salaries a lot more in like larger institutions and that shifts a lot of risk from you to the employer. So if you're not really breaking even for the hospital, you're not really making money for the hospital, you still have your guaranteed salary and that's not going to change. Maybe they're not going to renew your contract, like there's still some risk there, but you're going to make your salary. And then if you're working production-based, like all of that risk is on you. You have to make money or else you're not going to make as much money as you expected to. Yeah, like in a private setting, I mean, you might, especially if you're just fresh out of training or in a new job, they might give you a guaranteed salary for the first year or two. But ultimately, it's collection base. You know, how much money are you bringing in? And that's what your your total earnings will be based off of. And you got to be bringing in enough to cover your, your salary and even more so to cover the overhead expenses and, and whatnot associated with it. And obviously, the more you more you collect, the more you, you take home if it's structured 
appropriately, you know, eat what you kill type of model, which is why in private practice you, you have the potential to make more, um, but not guaranteed. And if you're not, you know, bringing in enough revenue, the practice is either going to let you go or restructure your contract to be like, hey, we can't pay you this much anymore because it's not, it's not profitable. Yeah. Sometimes those calculations are also pretty complicated. So I think if you are looking at a job like that, it can be important to, at least if the practice is large enough to say, hey, you know, the last few folks that started here, like how much did they make in their first like year one, year two, year three? Um, and if you have a comparison, that can be really helpful. And then also think about it in terms of how much do you want to work? Because <laughs> like, are you going to make average? It's like, do you want to work enough to make that average income? Or are you thinking that you kind of want to work less? Like, honestly, if you're production based, you're probably a person that wants to grind a little bit and work harder and make more money. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to, to think about all of those things. Yeah, if it's any type of production based model, regardless of the setting, you know, RVU based, collection based, whatever, um, definitely talk to some of the existing physicians, some of the ones that are similar boat as you, uh, maybe, you know, a couple years ahead and get a, get a idea of what their experience has been like. So you can kind of gauge where, where you stand. Um, whereas if, you're, if like, if you're in a truly academic setting, it's, you know, it's, you're basically, you know, faculty, assistant, professor, professor, etc. You kind of work your way up and those incomes are pretty much set in stone like you could you know exactly what you're going to make at each level up the ladder and and you know the hospital do you know inflation adjustments as time goes on but there's not really a lot of negotiating wiggle room opportunity to to earn more income um you know if you're in those faculty type roles you you know here's what the salary is and, and sure maybe you have the you could do some additional work outside like do some speaking or consulting on your own time and bring in, you know, some extra money via a side hustle. But, uh, but yeah, you know, your salary is pretty much that. Here's what you're making to do research and teach and, you know, maybe see some patients a couple of days a week at our institution. Mm-hmm. One other piece of pay that comes up is like incentive pay or like sign-on bonuses, retention bonuses, you know, stipends while you're in training. Like that, I've seen that come up lots of times, especially with private practices where they they give you a little bit of money to just help you make things more comfortable while you're in training and while you're finishing up. And all of those are definitely things to consider as well, but they're temporary. So I, I wouldn't give them as much weight as like your salary and your pay potential if it's not going to be an ongoing thing. So if they're going to give you a retention bonus every single year, that's one thing. Like, yeah, sure, we can try to consider that for ongoing compensation. But if it's a one-time sign-on bonus, it's very, like, awesome, we should consider that, et cetera. But, like, it's not going to be part of the picture forever. And even though it's not going to be a forever thing, definitely you should be asking for it if it's not already offered to you. Like, there's really no reason you shouldn't get... Uh, some type of sign-on bonus, at the very least, a moving allowance of you know ten thousand dollars minimum. Um, like you know, get something to to cover that transition, and and come on board. Like if they really want you and they're offering to pay you hundreds of thousands of dollars per year, like they can afford to to throw you a couple bucks on the front end, you know, to assist with that transition at the very least. But um, depending on the the setting. Yeah, you know, it's definitely negotiable. Like you, you can, 
you, you know, ask for the moon. They can always tell you no. Um, you know, I just had a, a client recently tell me she was able to negotiate the highest sign-on bonus ever at, at her hospital. And it's a very large, well-known hospital system that all of you would probably recognize. Um, and uh, you know, it, some of it just depends on what's the talent pool for you know how many other doctors are there that can do your job. Um, if you're a you know a rare breed, then you could ask for more. Um, you know, if you're a dime a dozen, then it's going to be hard to get a lot. But at the very least, like I said, you could probably get at least that moving allowance uh, negotiated in there. Absolutely. Okay. So outside of pay, there are a lot of other benefits to consider and and think about in a really like quantitative way because. All of the other benefits that an employer offers you are real money, like in your pocket or money that's not coming out of your pocket for something. So when we think about large academic institutions or other kinds of institutions versus some of these private practices, it can vary a lot. But a lot of times, larger employers can afford to offer better benefits. So larger institutions, they may not be quite as concerned with overhead or they you know they have economies of scale they're buying benefits for so many more people that the benefits are less expensive for them so they can potentially afford better benefits so those are lots of things that you want to be looking at and there's a big long list that they can give you um when you are looking at a prospective employer if you can get any sort of benefit summary from them like a pdf or something like that request it if they won't give it to you i don't like that like <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of that, Corey, but I've had lots of clients be like, you know, they kind of gave me this like one pager of what it is, but like with very little detail, like sure, there's some life insurance, there's some disability insurance, but like nothing about what it looks like. And sometimes they're hesitant to provide more details, which I think can be ridiculous in some cases. Um, and I, I know that it's not, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, like... There's no reason they shouldn't show you here's what the benefits are at our yeah. employer. You know, it's one thing if they don't want to tell you like the the secrets to their, you know, operations, but it's like, hey, mm -hmm. here's what our health insurance is, here's yeah. all the other benefits. Like there's no reason why they can't share that information. So if they're not willing to, that might be a red flag. Um but most um university hospitals, most major hospital systems out there, like you can just find their benefits online pretty Absolutely. easily. They post them on their website. Um occasionally they're behind a login like once you're employed and depending on the how big it is like they might have different benefits for different people like here's what the physicians get here's what the administrative staff gets or you know here's faculty versus whatever so there might be different tiers of benefits which can make it a little confusing if you're trying to search on your own online but most of them Again, most of the hospitals post their, their benefits package online. You might have to dig around a little bit. But again, just ask, and they should be yeah. able to send that to you. Assuming they want, they're interested in hiring you, You know, they should have zero issue sharing their benefit summary. Now, benefits can change from year to year. There is nothing in the contract that states the employer can't change their mind on what benefits they're going to offer. They could change their health insurance. They could add benefits, remove benefits. Um you know, so the, those benefits aren't guaranteed, but, you know, again, it's a, you know, free market out there. They got to attract people to work there. So they have to be competitive with their, um, you know, alternative uh, places that you could go work. So if they want to keep their, their employees happy, they'll need to ideally, 
offer consistent benefits from year to year and then gradually add versus reduce. <laughs> yeah, or just pay you a lot. Okay, we don't have benefits, but you get a fat salary. Right, um, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, those benefits really, there's not one. I mean, I would say health insurance is probably a pretty pretty much a sure thing no matter where you go work unless you're literally starting your own practice in which case you know get health insurance but um, aside from that the benefits package really can vary drastically Mm -hmm. with health insurance even there can be a difference in like how much your employer pays for and how much you pay for so that's a good thing to ask like they may offer health insurance but it may be that you're required to pay like a hefty portion of the premium so that's one thing we want to look at is just how much is going to come out of your pocket or how much is going to come out of your paycheck. So insurance-wise, like you want to look at health insurance. You want to look at disability insurance. Long-term disability is, is really the big one that we're thinking about here. So when you're looking at that, you want to know how much they offer, whether they pay for it. And then basically you can look at that and kind of see how much additional coverage you may need to buy through your individual policy, assuming you have one. And that's like real dollars, again, that will come out of your pocket in order to protect your income and kind of provide a coverage for that gap between what your employer offers and what you can get on your own. Um, Life insurance is another one. So how much do they offer you free of charge? Like that's a good thing to be thinking about. It's not a huge benefit necessarily, but it's something that they offer that they pay for sometimes. Um, I think retirement is a huge one. So when you're thinking about your retirement plan, you want to make sure you have one, first of all, like hopefully they have a 401k or a 403b or something like that set up. But then you want to look at what do the matching contributions look like? What do profit sharing contributions look like? Do they make a contribution even if you don't make a contribution, just an employer contribution? Is there any pension in the picture and a pension is usually like a benefit that is sometimes employee funded but if there's employer funded pensions that's even better and then what does that look like what how much does your employer put into that how much benefit could you potentially qualify for and then a really important thing to consider about all of these retirement plan benefits is what the vesting schedule is so how long do you have to work there before you're entitled to the benefits that your employer put into your retirement accounts. You know, is it three years before you get to take the 401k dollars that they put in there for you? Or is it like just a little percentage each year? Do you have to be there five years before you qualify for that full benefit amount? And if you're really unsure about the job and, you know, you think there's a good chance you might leave in a couple years, like you may not get to take much of that with you at all. Yeah, the retirement's a big one. And this is really where some employers can set themselves apart from others. You know, it's easy to compare base salary across the board. It's just, you know, apples to apples. What dollar amount is this place offering versus that place? But on the retirement side, so like let's just use the 401k and 403b model for for simplicity because those are the most common. In 2023, when we're recording this and when you're probably listening to it, um, maybe next year you'll listen or the year after for some some late bloomers to the uh, to uh, late adopters of the financial clarity for doctors podcast, but um, so the the maximum from your salary you can contribute as an employee is twenty two thousand five hundred dollars this year. You can contribute an extra sixty or seventy five hundred if you're age fifty or older. So you know you can put in twenty two thousand. The IRS says sixty six thousand dollars can go into that account though. 
So this is, again, where some employers choose to max out the profit sharing and they'll put in the $43,500 difference for you to get up to that IRS limit. I have some clients at, at places where the employer puts the full 66000 in. It's like, hey, we'll max out your allowable retirement for you. So if you're like comparing two jobs, one offers a base salary of 300000 and the employer max funds the profit sharing for the retirement, another place offers you 330000 but they only put a 3% match into the retirement plan. So it's, you know, really the, the job with the lower salary is actually giving you more money because your total compensation actually is, is 366. They're funding a significant amount of retirement for you, whereas job number two, yeah, it has a, the, the base salary is 30K higher, but they're only putting another, you know, nine ten thousand into the retirement plan for you. Yeah. And those dollars that go into the retirement plan, at least the employer contributions, they're not taxable right now. Like when you take them out, they'll be taxed. But right now it's like a very tax advantaged way to be, you know, earning more income. Maybe you don't get it in your pocket right now, but <laughs> but future you gets it, which is great. And how many retirement plans are there? Some employers offer multiple retirement plans, like some hospital systems all have three different retirement plans that can be added to. You know, you got your 403B that you can contribute to. The employer puts a, a decent chunk into a 401A, and then they also have like a separate pension. You know, Kaiser is well known for that. They've, they've got the pension plus the employer contributions plus your contributions, plus you can do additional after-tax dollars at some of their institutions. So, so like some places you could get, you know, when you add it all up, like six figures a year going away for retirement. You know, same with the private practice. You know, do they have the 401k? Do they max fund the profit sharing? You know, maybe they also have a defined benefit or cash balance plan on top of that, or a you know non-qualified deferred compensation plan. I know I'm speaking another language to you right now, but it's you know it's all dollars that ultimately add up that you can you know reap the benefits of down the road in retirement um, or when you leave that employer if you can take those dollars with you. So you know, definitely worth you know considering that in the equation and not just looking at the base salary you know how much are they funding for retirement for you and then you know how many plans do they offer that you can actually add your own money to in a tax favorable manner absolutely yep there's a couple of other small things so like most employers offer some sort of CME, like reimbursement, like that's real dollars that like if you have to do that anyway, if it doesn't have to come out of your pocket, that's nice. Um, malpractice, like usually you're covered by malpractice, but um, whether or not you have to purchase tail coverage can sometimes be a question, especially with smaller private practices. So tail coverage basically is the cost to like have your insurance protect you after you leave an employer. So while you're there, you're protected. If you separate, like if any claims come up after you separate from employment, you may need to have tail coverage that basically protects you against those claims. Um, most hospital systems, I, I, I don't know that I've ever heard of a client like leaving a hospital system and having to pay tail coverage. But private practices, sometimes that can definitely come up. So that's that's worth knowing about and it's also worth trying to quantify like how much will that cost if I do leave just so you have at least a rough estimate of what that could be. Yeah, tail is an important one, especially depending on your specialty. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it could be more costly than others if you leave. And just, just know what you're responsible for. And a lot of them have it like, 
you know, in the contract, oh, if you leave within the first three years, you know, if you leave in year one, you have to pay 100% of your tail premium in year two, you know, we'll split it 50-50, you know, after year three, you know, we'll cover the cost of tail. So, you know, it's just what's, you know, what are you responsible for if you leave? Um, student loans. Last but not least. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they're thinking about making this choice, they're like, what about my student loans? <laughs> Which is a very valid question. Very valid. So, again, most academic institutions, a lot of hospital systems also qualify for public service loan forgiveness. So if you work for a qualifying employer for 10 years or make 120 payments while make, working for a qualifying employer, and then you know you do income-based repayments and all that kind of stuff, you can potentially have your loans forgiven at the end of that period of time, income tax-free, which is big. Um, so it whether or not this should be a big consideration for you kind of depends on a couple of things. One is how big is your loan balance? So the larger your loan balance, the more potential benefit you can get from PSLF if you're able to get the balance forgiven at the end of that 10 years. The other big thing that plays into that calculation is how many years you did in training. So if you're seven years into training and you've already made seven years of payments and you have $400,000 of student loans, you stand to have a big chunk of money forgiven if you can do three more years for a qualifying employer. So it this can be fairly complicated in terms of the math. So, you know, using that example of like seven years, let's say, you know, you start in practice, you're still going to make fairly minimal payments for that next year. And then you're probably going to have like larger payments the next couple of years, but you're not going to pay a lot of money. But it's worth it to try to like figure out exactly how much money you pay, how much gets forgiven, and try to compare that to how much more money you could make with a private employer if that's something that you want to pursue and want to look at. Um, let's just say like you you do that, those seven years of training, you end, end training with $400,000 in student loans, and let's say the balance is $300,000 at the time that it's forgiven. So $300,000 of debt wiped away tax-free. So you'd have to earn that $300,000 more over three years, which is about $100,000 per year. Um, but that has to be like post-tax income from a private employer. So it's like $100,000 more per year in your pocket which is, I mean, that's a pretty big pay differential. Um, so if you can make that much more money in a private practice, like the student loans aren't a huge consideration. And the other thing is that sometimes you can negotiate with your employer. You can say, hey, I, like, I could turn around and work at this academic institution and have my loans forgiven. What can you do to help me pay off my student loans so that this is a more viable option for me? And definitely use that. If, it, if it's something that you're dealing with and trying to plan for, because a lot of times private practices will be willing to give you additional money to help with student loans. Yeah, it's definitely a big, 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 big consideration. And for those of you <laughs> listening who are still in med school residency, make sure you're going on the income-driven, one of the income-driven payment plans, um, pay-as-you-earn, revised pay-as-you-earn, IBR. I think they're consolidating some of them here with some of the recent law changes. I'm not sure when that goes into effect though. But regardless, you want to make sure you're on income-based payments. I know the last three years have, have been a little confusing because no one's had to make any payments on their loans. But you want to make sure if you don't already have 
your federal loans as direct loans, do a direct loan consolidation to get them into direct loans and make income-driven payments while you're in training. Even if you're not sure you're going to pursue PSLF, you just want to tee it up so that that door is open for you um, if it makes sense when you're done with training. Because like Rochelle said, if you're in training for you know four, five, six, seven years, you know, you only have to you know work for a few more years at a qualifying institution to potentially get hundreds of thousands of dollars wiped off your balance sheet. You know, that's going to save you thousands, like several thousand dollars a month over however many years it would take to pay off those student loans. Like if you have four hundred thousand dollars of student loans, you know, you're going to need to pay upwards of four thousand a month for a decade to get those paid off. And that's after-tax money. So if you could just work for a few years at a hospital or you know some type of academic setting, and then get that 400,000 kicked out of the way, all right, now go pursue whatever job you want to pursue. And again, maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe you know going to private practice, building the practice up long-term, better for your career ambitions and whatnot, and you can afford to pay off the student loan balances. But the larger that balance is the more strongly you should be considering PSLF, purely from a financial standpoint, which ultimately affects the rest of your life. Um, but yeah, the, you know, by the time you guys listen to this, it'll also come out probably in May. Um, you know, student loans are, will probably resume payments here in September, potentially June, but I'm not holding my breath that Congress will come to an agreement on anything. So um, the payments are going to resume soon. You, you've been spoiled the last few years with no payments, <laughs> but, but they're coming due. Um, so you know, we need to you know, definitely take those into the consideration. And yeah, ask the employer if it's, if it's not PSLF eligible, even if it is PSLF eligible. Hey, I got all these student loans. Can you help throw me a bone and help me you know, pay these off? Some places will offer you additional money to go towards your student loans. It may not be enough to cover the full payment, but you know, at least it's something that you could potentially get there. And they may also know about other programs that you can potentially qualify for that you don't know about. Um, so that's definitely, definitely worth asking any employer that you're working for. Like, what are my options to get some help with my student loans, period. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, I think obviously this is a complicated decision. It's not just about money, and we get that, but I do think that it's really important to understand all the details of the financial picture when you're when you're weighing your options because it is one of the big considerations. And it's just like, you know, one of those things that we put in the pro con column, right? <laughs> so, I yeah, I think it's really important just to know exactly what you're getting into when you're starting a new job. It's a big commitment. You know, this is something you've worked a really long time for, and you want to make sure that you're being compensated fairly for your time, like for all the time that you spent in training, for as hard as you've worked. Like, I think that's a really important piece of the picture. And all that being said, odds are this won't be the last job you have. Mm, you're, true. I would say, anecdotally, and I'm guessing there's probably statistics that aren't too far off, but for fresh out of training doctors, I would say at least probably about half change employers within the first three years. Um, you know, just from my personal experience working with people for about 15 years now, uh, I would say, you know, a good, you know, half of them probably aren't happy with the first job they take or they find a better opportunity or, or an opportunity in the city they ultimately want to be in. And then even your second job, 
probably not going to be your last. Like, you know, for whatever reason, you'll either find something different that's more appealing to you. You know, a, a suitor will come along and offer you more money to go to a different location. Um, you know, you're, it's, it's probably not, you're probably not going to be there for 30, 40 years. Just statistically speaking, it's unlikely. So, um, you know, yes, you want to definitely put a lot of thought and consideration into this, but at the end of the day, like if it's not the right decision for you after several years or whatever it is, like you can always move. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't ever feel like you're, I mean, hopefully you don't feel like you're stuck. You know, you always have options. I think that everyone listening here probably has a very desirable skill set. Like the world needs more doctors. So you can find another spot if you're not happy where you're at, hopefully. Yeah, may not be the, the perfect setting, but yeah, I haven't, I've yet to come across a doctor, a licensed credentialed doctor who couldn't find a job. May not be the perfect job, but yeah, there, there's still a demand for doctors out there. Well, let us know if you have any questions. Thanks for listening. Yep. See you next time. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.